What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. And as you know, there's no let up from the selling pressure today. Let's talk about some of the key things that have happened. The 10-year soaring to 3.2% before reversing. Gasoline prices back to record highs before oil started, started dropping. The Nasdaq dropping to its lowest intraday level since November of 2020. And all of this with key inflation readings ahead in the coming days. Our market's just stuck here until Powell gets more aggressive. We're going to debate that and look at where you can find value right now. We have a bunch of different stock picks to go through. Plus, financials are dropping despite these rising rates. So what's the disconnect? Should you still be banking on the trade taking off? One of our guests says yes, but you have to be selective. He's got the names that he is still bullish on. And we've got a beaten down pandemic name, a real estate heavyweight, and a logistics play at 52-week lows. We're going to preview three big names getting ready to report ahead in earnings exchange. First, though, let's get to Bob Bassani with the very latest on these markets. Bob. And uh, bottom line is we are not at the lows for the day, but we are not far from lows. And 52-week lows uh, is uh, unfortunately where we're at. Dow Industrials is at a 52-week low. S&P 500, the old low was 4061 at the start today. That was the May a year ago. Uh, we are now well below that. Look, We look to be closing at a 52-week low. Same thing with the NASDAQ already there. In terms of sectors, well, energy down today. Remember, it had a huge run, seven-year high on Friday. Uh, metals is a key story here, and that is the China slowdown. We're 20, 25 percent off of the recent highs in some of those metal names, and that's largely because of China, as I mentioned. Tech's moving a, a, a little worse uh, than the overall market. Consumer staples holding up uh, right now. If you look at mega cap tech uh, down here, but roughly in line with the markets, uh, but some of these tech names, NVIDIA's uh, down 6%. Some of these names are way, way off of their highs. Apple's about 15, 16% off its 52-week highs. There's a big bifurcation between the quality big cap tech you're looking at here and the more speculative names. This has been going on for weeks now. Coinbase, look at that, uh, $85. Coinbase was $400 a year ago uh, when it was going public. Block, Unity Software, Shopify, all down. If you look at the downside leaders, today, other than energy stocks, which occasionally just goes a little bit odd and start trading on the downside. There you see NVIDIA and those metal names like Mosaic and Freeport McMoran. Freeport is 25% off of its recent highs. Finally, there's a little bit of hiding in the consumer staples names. Believe it or not, we have new highs, 52-week highs in Campbell's Soup uh, and uh, in a couple of the other names. Kellogg's at a 52-week highs. Not so with Smucker, General Mills, and Kraft, but those stocks all outperforming dramatically in the last five or six trading sessions. Kelly, back to you. All right, Bob, thank you very much. Our Bob Bassani. Fed Chair Powell may have signaled a 75 basis point hike won't happen anytime soon, but at least one other Fed official is leaving the door open. Richmond Fed's Thomas Barkin on Friday saying, quote, I never rule anything out, so I think anything would be on the table. He's not a voting member, FYI. Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostek disagreeing this morning, saying we can stay at this pace and really see how the markets evolve. He wanted to rule out more than half point hikes. Also not a voter. Uh, Neil Kashkari of the Minneapolis Fed, well, he offered his own take on Squawk Box this morning. Listen. 
I'm confident we are going to get inflation back down to our 2% target, but I am not yet confident on how much of that burden we're going to have to carry versus getting help from the supply side. For more on the Fed's next move, let's welcome in John Taylor, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and professor of economics at Stanford, and Diane Swank, the chief economist at Grant Thornton. Great to have you both here. John Taylor, I'll direct uh, that question to you to quote Neil Kashkari. How much does the Fed have to do here? Well, I think they have to do more. It's, it's good they moved uh, last week uh, a bit, uh, but by all calculations, the inflation rate is, is higher than corresponding interest rate, and so they still need to make the adjustments. I think if they do it in the kind of way Jay, Jay Powell mentioned, 50 basis points for the next two moves and maybe more, more than that, I think we're at 3% at the end of the year. It should be in the right direction, but uh, we're not there yet, and that's, that's the problem. I, don't, I think if the, re, if the move is made in a sure way so people understand it, I think it will not be the damaging effect that many people worry about. Diane, hasn't this been just as damaging? Ruling out 75 basis points has uh, unleashed some havoc in the markets. Well, we have seen that, but I do think the Fed is committed to getting up to at least what they think is neutral, two to two and a half percent by year end. I'm at two and a half percent. That said, we don't know for sure that that's neutral. Our own analysis suggests we need to get to three and a half percent plus. We don't know exactly how much that doubling the pace of sort of the runoff on their balance sheet will actually have in tightening monetary conditions, and neither does the Fed. There is no consensus on how much that will amplify rate hikes, and I think that's where the context gets a little bit murky. We've already seen mortgage rates move up quite significantly, much more rapidly than we saw the 10-year Treasury bond move up, and that was because of the Fed even talking about selling some of their mortgage-backed securities. They haven't taken that off the table yet either, so we're going to see a lot of evolution and what the Fed does. And I think you're going to see our own analysis is you're going to have to see an increase in the unemployment rate above 5% before inflation settles down to 2%. Wow. So you're in a hard landing no matter how you get there. It may be a hard landing over a period of time where we slowly get there or more rapidly. And that's why the Fed's so uncertain because they're not sure about what the external shocks are going to be, additional demand side shocks or on the supply side as but, well. Diane, I, 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 I must have just missed. I always think of you as more b- balanced, and you are. So to hear you say that we have to get the unemployment rate up to 5% here is pretty shocking to me. I mean, is that what you think is being priced into these markets? We're, we're talking about an increase from the current unemployment rate to what you think is necessary. That has never happened without a recession. It's going to be quite difficult. And when um, the Fed chairman says that there's a path that theoretically could get us where supply and demand magically meet, particularly in the labor market, there is a path that it could happen, but that's a pretty narrow path. And I would argue it's unpaid and full of potholes. And when you're putting the balance sheet in reverse on top of that, that's kind of like akin to driving with the rearview mirror without any um, cameras in the back of the car. So you just don't know what kind of obstacles you're going to hit. This is a tricky operation using both levers together of the balance sheet. This is no longer the balance sheet just paint drying in the background as we saw it previously. And I think 
that is a big issue as well. But our our issue is, listen, 11.6 million job openings, 1.9 jobs per worker when the Fed wants to get it closer to one to one. Right. It's hard to get from here to there easily without a recession. John Taylor, how do you think the Fed should be talking to markets right now? Because when Powell said they were still hoping for a soft or softish landing, um, markets basically pushed back against that and said, you know, you're putting the, the wrong priority forward and we're not even going to give you that priority that it is you seek. It's almost like the markets are saying, if you want a soft landing, tell us you're going to tackle inflation. Tell us you're going to do what Diane's describing and not blink, uh, no matter what that means for the economy. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. The, the Fed needs to indicate what it needs to do. And by the way, if it's still below any neutral rate, that's not going to be enough by any calculation. But I think what's different now, this is a recent increase in inflation. You know, we've been talking about it for a year or so. And so that means the Fed does have the capability of slowing the inflation rate without having the damaging effect that we've seen before. It needs to be forward-looking. It needs to explain what it's after. It needs to explain that it is behind the curve. We had a big conference uh, here at Hoover at Stanford on Friday, and so many people were saying the Fed is behind the curve. Let's get back. Let's explain how we're doing it. And I think that's the key. So more transparency about how it's going to happen, at least 3% by the end of this year. And we'll see if that's enough. I hope it is, but it probably will require more. Well, you've told us before you think that, you know, your own namesake rule implies they need to be more at a level of like 5%. So just say what you said a moment ago one more time. You do think there is a window here for them to kind of not cause that much more damage? And, and what do they need to say exactly in order to, to pull that off? I, I do think there's a window. It needs to be pronounced, discussed, led, so that people understand it's not going to be a surprise. It's going to be, it's, they're, they're working on that for sure. And, and you're right. If you plug in the inflation rate, you plug in where we are in terms of the economy, you get 5%. That's why I say get to 3% at the end of this year. Maybe it will be required more than that. But I think that's the key. The, the signaling, uh, you know, that's why I like rules and strategies so much. And it's not just the Fed, by the way. This is a global issue. And so communicating to other central banks what they're doing is very important, too. Communicating to the market, communicating to people. The more that there's a communication about where they're going, the better and the least harmful this will be. You think in a nutshell then that just by saying they're going to 3%, they're going, they does, do they need to put 75 basis points explicitly back on the table? They, I wouldn't be so specific as that, but yeah, if they did it in the right way, that would be fine. But I think the, the point is these, these rules, these guidelines, these strategies have been shown to work and they're, they've never been so far off as they are now. And that's why there's some promise. Just getting back to these rules, these mm -hmm. strategies, will be just what is needed to have a, if you like, a soft landing or, or no landing at all, just keep going. This, this economy, is, as Diane indicates, needs to have more growth to it, not less. All right. We'll leave it there. John Taylor and Diane Swank, thank you very much for your thoughts today. We appreciate it. Let's turn now to what it all means for investors with the Dow down 556 points right now and the Nasdaq down almost that much. My next guest is turning to some global dividend payers to find value. He's Jason Brady, president and CEO of Thornburg Investment Management. Jason, just a, a reaction, first of all, to what we just heard there. Um, what is your overall, I don't know if advice for investors is the right term, but tell people why they even need to bother being in this market right now. So I think going back to the initial commentary from Neil Kashkari this morning, 
uh, on, well, the sort of finish of that statement was, we're not sure how much help we're gonna get from the supply side, which means that more is going to have to be done on the demand side, right? And the demand side, fixing the demand side means slowing the economy. And so this is, this is really the, the backdrop that we're talking about. I mean, investors need to be invested in the context of having some element of growth over time. But this is gonna be, make no mistake, this is gonna to continue to be an extremely volatile environment with the big support of, of liquidity and monetary policy being removed from the marketplace. It's just the conditions of the market as we find them. So let's talk about some of the specific plays that you like. I would say maybe some of these are our dividend payers, but um, you can walk us through them. Uh, you have in technology, you have names like SAP and Visa, in financials, Capital One and JP Morgan, and in energy, Chesapeake and Total. So first of all, all of this together is, these are portfolio level conversations, right? I, I, what we've seen is investors pushing all their money in on just one answer, right? So whether it's large cap tech or whatever it may be, uh, investors essentially got over-indexed to the US and growth. Now, that's a good part of a portfolio, that's important. But if you're over-indexed to that, you can't really shift as easily uh, in the context of being opportunistic if you're down. SAP is a great example of some balance, right? Hurt because it's uh, in Europe, it's a tech name, so tech, it's, but it's a cheap tech name, and it's really a, global, a really a global company. So it's not trivially expensive, it does have a nice dividend. As investors shift from the multiples on revenue to net income to the balance sheet, as you shift through that attitude change, you're going to want to look for those that are more, that are stronger in the latter two, and SAP is one. Right. So it's sort of like saying the dividend is one aspect of what you're looking for. But again, I mean, the dividend's a moving target right now, not just because of stock prices, but also because of bond yields. So a dividend that might have looked attractive at 2.5% last year might not look so attractive anymore. And bonds, high-quality fixed income looks more attractive. The reality is, what we've seen is real rates rise in the United States as fast as they did in the taper tantrum. And prior to that, there was no other time when they rose this quickly. So bonds actually are starting to be relatively better. Mm -hmm. Now, in, in a rising rate environment, what you've seen is dividend payers with cash flow, right? With the ability to actually give you money back today, actually have outperformed those that don't have dividends, that don't have that cash flow. So it's not, it's not an either or question. Actually, both sides are, are protective. Final question, what are you watching for signs that this market has bottomed? <sighs> when everybody comes on your show and says, I throw in the towel, yeah. sell it all. <laughs> um, we're, we're being driven at this point by sentiment uh, as much as by fundamentals. And, and there is going to be, everyone should prepare for a time of higher volatility. We're in a market regime change, right? Less liquidity, again, moving from thinking about uh, the revenue line to net income and balance sheet. This is all happening in real time. So we're shifting. And the great thing is investors can, are finding today opportunities for the medium to long term. And that's what we're focused on here at Thornburg. But you're too constructive for your own good. You know that. You, you know, it's only when, when you're going home and saying, you know, I don't know, maybe I should find something else to do. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, some days you've, you, everybody's got those days, yeah. that's for sure. <laughs> Jason, thanks for your time. It's good to see you. Jason Brady with Thornburg. Still ahead, energy prices are sliding along with the broader market today, but not before pump prices jumped back towards record levels over the weekend. Which energy plays should you scoop up on this pullback? We'll speak with one energy portfolio manager about that next. Plus, can earnings help these stocks break out of their slump? Simon Property Group, XPO Logistics, they're down 30 to 40% from their recent highs. Peloton, of course, 
up 90%. We have the action, the story, and the trade on all three ahead in earnings exchange. And as we head to break, here's a quick look at the Dow down one and three quarters of a percent, S&P down 2.7%. S&P is 11 points above the 4,000 level right now. The Nasdaq is down three and a half percent. We're going to have more on that later. It's 28% off its highs. Back in a moment. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs and the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently, and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back, everybody. Oil is part of the sell-off today, and energy stocks are sliding across the board. Marathon, APA, Occidental, Devon, some names leaving the declines. Marathon is now down almost 12%. The whole sector still is up about 40% this year. It's one of only two sectors still in the green. So is today's pullback a chance to go bargain hunting? My next guest brings six names he likes right now. Rob Thummel is Senior Portfolio Manager at Tortoise. Capital. Rob, it's great to have you back. So, it, it, you know, the one thing to point out about today's price action is that it's not like the oil price is back at 70 or 80 a barrel. We are like $5 off of where we were before the massive SPR release. These levels are still very high. And yet the sell-off tells you how much anxiety there is about recession in the market. Yeah, you're right, Kelly. I think it's probably some profit-taking, right? As you highlight, the sector's been up uh, relative, uh, quite high relative to other sectors this year. Um, you know, concerns about the economy slowing and, and, and then broader demand, both globally and domestically, obviously can drive energy stocks on a day-to-day basis. But there's no doubt that energy stocks are delivering for investors, really what, what investors are looking for. And, and a lot of people talk about it on your, on your program, looking for dividend yields. There's a lot of dividend yields coming in and, and high dividends coming out of the energy sector, high free cash flow yields. You know, energy is just really essential to, to really every, everything you do in your life. And, and that's not, 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 not going to go away anytime soon. Do you have any, I mean, I know you have picks, but are there, when, especially days like this where you have these kind of indiscriminate sell-offs, yeah. what names do you say to people, if you're sitting at home, you've missed out on the energy run this year, go buy these three or four names right now? Yeah, so so when we look at what's going to steer the, the global energy sector going forward, it's going to be energy security and decarbonization. And that's a, how we look at it at Tortoise. So if you look at Chenier Energy, classic example of uh, of a stock that fits both of those, right? Energy security. Chenier transports liquefied natural gas to all over the world. In fact, 75% of Chenier's volumes in the first quarter went to Europe. So it's helping out improve energy security throughout the world. It's also decarbonizing. It's transporting natural gas. What is, why is natural gas decarbonizing? Well, it emits 50% 
less emissions when it displaces coal like it's doing. So here's one example that we really like in this particular environment. High income secu uh, securities are also important. Enbridge is another example. Enbridge is, uh, is really North America's largest pipeline operator. Uh, Enbridge has got about a 6% dividend yield. It operates uh, big infrastructure projects. Um, it, it's, if you think about how are we going to decarbonize the fastest and how we're going to accelerate that, you need to use existing infrastructure. So when, when you have a company like Enbridge that owns a lot of North American infrastructure, they're going to be able to decarbonize, whether it's through hydrogen or, or carbon sequestration going forward. Um, and, and in the meantime, you're going to get a nice dividend yield um, while the company continues to improve its, its carbon footprint. Yeah, and you actually have a bunch of, so you mentioned Chenier and Enbridge. I see here EQT, you like Pioneer, PXD, Shell, and Chevron. Uh, where's Exxon on the list? Well, well, Exxon's a great stock, too. Um, I mean, all the energy stocks effectively, and if you look at what's going on in the energy sector now, you think about it, it's hard to find any companies in the S&P 500 that, that are actually raising guidance um, and, or, and actually even meeting their guidance, right? Most companies in the S&P 500 are lowering guidance. Basically, the entire energy sector has beat guidance and is raising their guidance for 2022. Exxon's an example of that. But we like uh, Shell and, 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 in particular, Chevron um, a little bit better uh, based on valuation and, and then also because of the growth opportunities in areas that are outside traditional oil and gas. So in decarbonizing areas, things like renewable fuels, uh, carbon capture, sequestration as well. All right. All right. We'll leave it there. Uh, this is not the last time we're going to talk about this. Rob, good to have you on today. Thank you. Thanks, Kelly. Rob Thummel. Still ahead, shares of Rivian are plunging to a new all-time low. We will tell you why after this quick break. RIVN down 19%. As we go to break, let's also check on the Dow heat map. Here's all 30 names. Only a handful of them are in the green right now. But there are a few, as uh, Bob mentioned earlier, a lot of the staples names. Walmart, Amazon, actually one of, or I'm sorry, Amgen, 3M, Home Depot. Uh, meanwhile, one of your worst performers today, Chevron and Boeing. We're back in a moment. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. Welcome back to The Exchange right now. The Dow low was a minus 653. So we are still about 100 points off that level, but uh, we're feeling very heavy here in the 1 o'clock hour. The Dow's down about 545. The S&P down 108. It's 
about 14 or 15 points above 4,000 right now. And the NASDAQ is down 3.5%. Here are the sector laggards. Energy actually is the worst performing sector. It's been the best all year, followed by tech, real estate, consumer discretionary, and materials. Only one sector is in the green, but we will get to that in a moment. The alternative energy stocks are getting hammered today with shares of Rivian plunging to an all-time low as Ford and other early investors begin to unload some of their shares after the lockup expiration. Uh, Rivian is also set to report first quarter results after the bell on Wednesday. It's trading at about $23 a share. Nicola, plug, you can see they're all uh, under some more pressure. The positive sector today is consumer staples. Those safety plays, Church and Dwight, Campbell Soup, J.M. Smucker, Clorox even, and General Mills up 2 or 3%. I say Clorox, that obviously had a tougher pandemic hangover, but these are the places people are going to hide. Over to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Ty? All right. Hi, Kelly. Uh, the president of the European Council is the latest Western leader to visit Ukraine to show support for the country. Charles Michel toured Odell, I'm sure it's Odessa, with Ukraine's prime minister. They saw a building damaged by shelling. In comments to NBC News today, a senior U.S. defense official again uh, characterized Russia's military efforts in the Donbass region as incremental and somewhat anemic. The prime minister of Sri Lanka has resigned after weeks of protests. This is a cabinet minister's house set on fire by anti-government protesters unhappy with the country's worst economic crisis in decades. Opponents of the government now want the country's president out, too. He is the prime minister's brother. And in Boston, celebrity chef Mario Batali arrived in court for the first day of his trial. He faces charges connected to a 2017 allegation of sexual misconduct while taking a selfie with a female. Batali has waived his right to a jury trial, so a municipal court judge will decide the case. Tonight on the news with Shep Smith, how New York State is getting ready for a post-Roe America. 7 Eastern Time, Shep Smith. Kelly, see you in a half hour. Tyler, thank you very much. See you then. Still ahead, three names getting ready to report, including Peloton, down another 7% today. The short-term options are implying a 25% move for Peloton shares. We'll see which way that goes. We have all the key things you need to know in Earnings Exchange next. Welcome back, everybody. Time for earnings exchange. The first quarter earnings season is winding down, but we still have some big names set to report this week, like Disney on Wednesday. So let's take a look at the action, the story, and the trade on three companies with results on deck in the next 24 hours. And we'll start with XPO Logistics. Those shares hitting a 52-week low today into earnings as analysts are looking for shipping volumes as a proxy for spending, as well as any insight into labor or cost headwinds. Here with the story on XPO, Frank Holland. And with our trades today, Delano Sapporo is New Street Advisors founder and CEO and a CNBC contributor. Welcome to both of you. Frank, what are you be watching? Well, first thing everybody's going to be watching is EPS. Uh, EPS is forecast to decline 36% year-over-year by analysts. But this follows a long string of transportation companies really beating the estimates just over the last week or so. And that's why we saw the Dow Transports and other transportation companies outperform the market even during the sell-off. The second thing to watch here, well, it's what they're going to keep and what they plan to spin off. The company's planning to keep its less-than-truckload trucking segment and become a pure-play trucker. So the question is, what are the revenues there and what is the margin? Also, what they plan to spin off, which is their truck brokerage business and also their freight forwarding business, what's the performance of that like right now? Um, a lot of investors are going to be watching both because, as you can imagine, right before you spin off something, your stock's going to trade in relation to, to what people expect to see from that spin off. I spoke to CEO 
CEO and Chairman Brad Jacobs, he says he believes that XPO is really undervalued as a conglomerate, and he believes by really focusing on trucking, it's going to unlock a lot of value for the company and the stock. Yeah, they've made so many moves, it's hard to keep up. Frank, let me ask you in a nutshell, is XPO at 52-week lows because of macro, i.e. slowdown concerns, or micro, labor uh, pressures and cost issues? Or I, I mean, I know it can always be both, but what's the narrative? I mean, if you talk to analysts, it's really macro because things don't really line up when you look at the stock performance to what you're really seeing out there. Just a few weeks ago, I was actually on your show. We talked about a freight recession because rates were going down. Well, the last set of data that we had, freights are actually negative year over year. They're down 10 percent over what they were in 2021, but they're still up double digits from 2020 and from 2019. So the question here is, what kind of performance is XPO going to give out? Um, if you look at the trends of what we've seen from transportation companies, they're probably going to beat the estimates. But the question is, by how much and then how does the market respond to that? Sure, absolutely. Um, Delana, what would you do with the stock? Hey, Kelly, thanks for having me. I think there's a couple of things that investors can do. If you're holding the stock, I think you hold. And Frank is right by mentioning the macro level environment that we're seeing. We're seeing that companies are pulling back on hiring. We're seeing consumer spend could potentially get to go go lower. So, you know, you want to really be careful as far as, you know, what companies are invested in. On the bull side case, obviously, they have strong pricing power with their customers. Um, their volume, even though it's down in some, some segments, they were able to increase top line with that pricing power. And their less than truckload segment is the one I zeroed in on. Um, it's for those small to medium, small to medium sized businesses, retailers, which is going to be a growing part of the overall retailers, I believe, if you look at e-commerce still being just 13% of retail sales. So um, I think investors could hold on that stock. I wouldn't be buying it. Just in this environment, you really want to be careful about which stocks you're buying, Kelly. All right. And less than 10 times forward earnings as well. Remarkable. We'll see what happens after hours tonight. A Mad Money XPO Logistics CEO Brad Jacobs will join Jim Cramer fresh from the call at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Frank Holland, thank you. Let's turn now to Simon Property Group, the mall owner. Shouldn't they be a reopening beneficiary? But the shares are down 26% this year, and they're just 4% above the 52-week low from last week. Courtney Reagan has our story on this one. Court? Kelly, you know, obviously the mall is a place that we've all been focused on for a number of years. There have been times when it's looked good. There have been times when it hasn't looked so great. And Simon Property Group is really widely considered the best of breed when you're talking about the mall. They have a lot of those A-rated malls. And so I think whatever results we get, we just have to remember that it's probably as good as it's going to get from Simon Property Group. But you point out at the share performance and mall REITs as a subsector of the REIT group, the biggest underperformer year to date. You said Simon Property Group down 26%. Of course, that is gonna be something that many investors are gonna key in on. What could be a catalyst to move it forward? Net operating income is always a key metric here, of course. But I think we're gonna wanna understand bigger trends. Is in-person shopping still seeing a resurgence? We've seen a lot of sort of downward trends from e-commerce players. Is the mall a beneficiary of what e-commerce has lost? And if so, is Simon Property Group the best in breed? And remember, Simon also has uh, taken on some interesting investment strategies with some of these beleaguered mall names, in some cases either names that have been bankrupt or those that were almost there. And so investors want to know, are they looking to make more acquisition targets or look at in, any more of these SPACs? Because that could potentially be a revenue generating opportunity going forward. And then, of course, you want to know what's happening with consumer traffic and the retailers and tenant sales within as gas prices move higher. Are consumers consolidating trips? Are they going to the mall less? 
but perhaps buying more on each trip. That's always going to be key and really good commentary from CEO David Simon, who is always a glass half full kind of CEO. Kelly. <laughs> I think you have to be, especially these days. Uh, Delano, let me turn to you. Unibail. So we have Simon underperforming. We have Unibail looking to get rid of its U.S. properties, including the huge mall uh, just out this way in New Jersey, one of the best in the area. What is going on with is the headwind interest rates? I mean, Courtney mentioned a lot of factors, but I'm really surprised these have been such a terrible investment. Yeah, I think it's actually a double-edged sword, Kelly, because if you look at the bull case for Simon, you know, post-pandemic was spending and improvement and everyone going back out uh, post-pandemic. And they increased occupancy from 93.4% to 91.3%. But if you're kind of reading the tea leaves and what's going on, there is a little bit of fear from consumers on inflation. There's more than a little bit. There's a lot of fear. You know, there's companies with wages. That's, that's going to be stagnant a little bit. So I do think they're still best in breed. Uh, and if you're wanting to have exposure to that, you should obviously be holding your shares. But the downside risk is consumer behavior and what's happening with, you know, obviously the e-commerce trend and just overall fear with inflation and if people are going to be holding on to the dollars rather than going out and spending those dollars, Kelly. It is remarkable, Courtney, and it seems almost unfair that you have the entire e-commerce category contracting and yet the mall category is also contracting at the same time. Yeah, it is interesting, though, Kelly. I think just like everything, you have to read between the lines. And when we got the MasterCard monthly retail sales data, it again showed an uptick in in-store sales. Of course, it's not going to be always across the board. Some players are going to be stronger. Some categories are going to be stronger. Luxury continues to be strong despite inflation, despite everything that's going on in the macroeconomic environment. And in a number of categories, home furnishing is still strong, although to your earlier point, Wayfair is not a beneficiary, at least not recently, as of that category. Yeah, it's like, it, it, honestly, this is liquidity receding, it feels like, and uh, some contraction happening across the board. Courtney, thank you. Our Courtney Reagan will be watching Simon's earnings today. And last but not least, we turn to Peloton, which today hit a new all-time low. We've got those reports of a possible sale to a minority stakeholder. Options are pricing a 24% move post-earnings. Diana Olick is here with the story. Diana? Well, Kelly, this will be the first quarterly earnings report with new CEO Barry McCarthy at the helm. So, of course, analysts and investors will be looking for any remarks about additional cost cutting as the company is forecast to report a fiscal third quarter loss of 83 cents a share compared with a three cent loss just a year ago. And McCarthy did come in saying that there would be a lot of cost cutting ahead. Now, it already laid off close to 3,000 employees and announced it will raise the price for its monthly subscription while lowering the bike and tread prices. Analysts will be watching subscriber growth closely, of course. It currently has 6.6 .6 million members, and that includes those on just the app and connected on Peloton hardware. So a lot to listen for. And this, again, the first time with a new CEO at the helm. Kelly? You know, maybe that can get some life back in the stock. Delano, you're still steering clear? Yeah, personally, Kelly, this is one that I, a growth stock that I've been lucky not to own. And I think the bull case for investors that are owning is, you know, low churn rate. They obviously have a new voice in management um, and they're lowering the price of the bike. But the reasons why I was not owning, Kelly, is you look at the major restructuring going on right now and the price, the, the price reduction is still not going to 
it could affect the bottom line, obviously, in margins. And I think the demand for the bike won't be offset by that reduction. I think the, the demand was the highest during the pandemic, and that demand is slowly going away. Um, and you still have supply chain issues, and they're dealing with those higher freight costs that we talked about earlier. So, you know, a lot of headwinds for Peloton, Kelly. Are there any glimmers of hope, Diana? And, and are there any other names in the connected fitness category that seem to be benefiting from their struggles here? Not in connected fitness, though, but we are seeing a lot of good buzz around names like Planet Fitness, which is, of course, the discount gym of people going back to the gym. And that's because you're looking for that discount right now, especially when people are digging deeper into their pockets to pay for everything else because of inflation. So when you have a discretionary product like Peloton and these monthly fees to work out at home, that may be the first thing to go. But Peloton does seem to be pushing forward. They're launching all sorts of new things on the apps, new kinds of racing, new music venues all sorts of things like that. So they don't seem to be pulling back on the content. But again, it's that media content that's really pushing forward, not so much on the hardware. Lowering the price may bring some demand back in, but that's a pricey bike and a pricey tread, no matter how you slice it. And if you can get it a lot cheaper, leaving the house, a lot of people may choose to do that now. Yeah, they're going back to the gym, but not back to the mall. See, what a great America we have uh, emerged as. Diana, we will leave it there. Thank you, Diana Olick. Delano, really appreciate it as well. Delano Sapporo with all of our trades today. Coming up, we have a tech on the check trade, for better or worse. Airbnb, Palantir, and Uber down 20 to 30% in just the past week. The NASDAQ is down another 3% today. We've got all the biggest movers with more than half of the index down by 50 50 percent from their highs. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange. If you were hoping for that tech bounce today, we are not getting it. The Nasdaq is down another three and a half percent. It's trading at 11,725. This index is 28 percent down from its record highs. Deirdre Bosa joins us with more on some of the big decliners after the past week that has been a wild ride first to the upside, Deirdre, and mm-hmm. now to the downside. Yeah, wild ride indeed. And Kelly, big tech, that continues to be the big question in the current sell-off. Mega caps, of course, they essentially led the market higher over the last decade or so. Now they continue to lead it lower. Investors trying to figure out where the bottom is, and they might be looking at valuations. Some could argue that they are still expensive on a relative basis. Amazon is still trading at a 40 times forward P.E. multiple. Um, Microsoft and Apple, 25 and 23, respectively. The Nasdaq is at 21. Alphabet's forward PE has fallen to 17. Meta, Netflix, they trade around 14 times. So it is becoming increasingly clear that the mega caps, what we've called FANG or FANG M for years, trading less and less like a group. Investors have to be more discerning. Look at earnings growth, at the fundamentals. Where have they broken down? Where are they intact? Looking beyond the large caps, the pain continues to be far worse for mid cap and even the less large tech. Chip makers, they continue to be under pressure. Recent IPO names like Affirm, Rivian, Roblox, Palantir, Asana continue to bleed in today's session. Kelly, as we heard from Uber CEO Darvar Khosrow Shahi in that letter to employees last night, the market is getting impatient. They want to see money. That means profits, free cash flow, which some of the younger names will struggle with. Back over to you. Yeah, you know, we had talked to Danielle Shea about this last week when she was watching uh, key levels in Tesla, Microsoft and Apple. With Tesla, it was 800. We're nearing that level. With Apple, it was 150. We're only a couple dollars uh, above that right now. And with Microsoft, we've broken below 270 that she was watching. That was a name for a lot of people that had held up relatively better amid the selling pressure. 
Yeah, I would certainly put Apple and Microsoft um, in that group where the fundamentals are still intact. So when they break below those levels, that is concerning. Whereas you had throughout earnings season real problems with Netflix, with even Alphabet in terms of ad headwinds, um, certainly Meta for a long time. Uh, competition. That is a more fundamental problem. Uh, so investors are watching closely. And as we continue to see some of those levels broken, they're going to continue to look at those valuations. Um, yeah. But it's getting tougher out there. I thought Lauren Martin also made some great points this morning uh, talking about Amazon. Again, we all have to remember these are mega buyback programs that are going on. At least we yeah. can't criticize them for buying at the highs. Deirdre, they, well, we hope not. Uh, Deirdre, thank you very much. Deirdre Bosa. Still ahead, higher interest rates are supposed to help the financials. So why isn't that happening? This sector is still down double digits over the past month, but our next guest remains bullish on certain names in the group. He's here to make his case. During May, we're also celebrating Asian American and Pacific Islander heritage and featuring some of our CNBC teammates and contributors. Here's JP Morgan Managing Director Joyce Chang. One important thing about the Asian American community is that it's not a monolith. There's real diversity of Asians that's often not recognized. So I was born in Peoria, Illinois. I grew up in rural Iowa, in Knoxville, Iowa, um, which isn't that typical. But I think growing up Chinese, one major value is humility. But in the workforce, in order to keep moving up in your career, you need to be able to promote yourself and your achievements to others. And that's a balance. It's a balance of achieving these ideals and really staying on cultures. Welcome back. Take a look at some of the big bank stocks. JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, all more than 25% off their 52-week highs, even with the supposed tailwind of higher rates. My next guest says sentiment is as bad as it's been since March of 2020, but earnings haven't been this good in years. So do you buy or bail on the trade? For more, I'm joined by Jeff Hart, senior bank analyst with Piper Sandler. Jeff, good to have you. And I mean, why is sentiment so bad? Is it just the recession concern? I think that that's probably the, the primary driver. I mean, where we're sitting is interest rates are clearly a tailwind, but it was kind of an expected tailwind. So coming into the year, bank stocks at least had some higher rates kind of priced in. They're materializing, which is good as opposed to being expected. What's changed, though, is especially with the war in Ukraine and how much inflation has stepped up, there's growing concerns that we're going to be heading into a recession and therefore a spike in credit losses. And I think that's uh, that's really what's weighing on the banks. And it's really been the kind of difference maker, I think, for bank stocks the last you know, couple of months, probably. Yeah. And understandably, you know, investors don't want to have to be the ones who call the recession thing correctly. And so therefore, they're just staying away from the space. But you know, there's plenty of people who think this is a valuation correction more than it is an actual recession uh, that's looming, at least in the near term. I wonder if one of the other problems for the banks, though, is actually their labor costs. I mean, this is an issue going back to what J.P. Morgan said at the turn of the year. Well, certainly there's, there, there's labor inflation all across the economy, and the banks have seen some. I think actually, especially for anybody involved in investment banking, last year was such a good year, and trading as well, that you probably had some artificially uh, elevated comp expenses last year that, that won't be as bad this year. So I, I think the, the expense outlook's probably not going to be as big an issue. But at the end of the day, when you're investing in financials, you have to have a macro call, like it or not, because they're very closely tied to the economy. And if your macro call is we're heading to a recession, you want to stay away. If your macro call is, oh, the Fed's not going to hike as much as the market thinks and the economy will keep growing, all of a sudden these banks are, are I think, looking pretty attractive with a lot of bad news priced in. 
Well, who I, I feel like from talking with you in the past, you like the big money center banks uh, typically, but who are your favorites right now? Who do you think is best positioned for this environment? I mean, I, I find myself coming back to the big universal banks, right? Bank of America tops my list. Uh, JP Morgan's there as well. If we actually do go into a recession and credit costs spike, these guys have the scale, rather uniquely, the scale to really defend their bottom line, but to also then go out and maybe be offensive and gain some market share kind of while others are struggling. If, on the other hand, the capital, the, uh, the, the economy turns out to be okay and we don't go into a recession, I mean, these guys are levered to interest rates, they've got loan growth, and they're levered to capital markets. So I, I kind of think sitting here today that the safest place to be, whether you're bullish or bearish, if you're going to be in bank stocks, is a company like B of A or a company like J.P. Morgan. It seems like the problem is it's not even if I could tell you whether or not we're entering recession in what month, I would have to tell you this is when the chatter about it stopped because until the chatter stops, it's not going to go away as a concern weighing on the, their performance, is it? No, no, that, that, that's true. And I think what, what we'll have to probably see is a, a slowing of the inflationary pressures. But I do think we will see kind of as we get into the back half of the year, but, you know, some slowing in the inflationary pressures and uh, certainly any positive news on kind of the war front in Europe. I mean, it, it's it's easy to, it's not easy to forget, but I mean, that, that that's a major headwind. If we could kind of get some kind of a truce or peace in, in Ukraine slash Russia and get some headwinds from the inflation side, really kind of dialing back a bit, that, that that could be what it takes to kind of get people in. Because you're right, as we sit here today, we're still seeing loan growth. That's good. We're seeing high rates. That's good. But, you know, that, that macroeconomic outlook really seems to be what, what has the market kind of scratching its head. No, it's a great point. And you're right. We haven't talked uh, that much about the Ukraine issue lately. Jeff, thanks for joining us today. Good to be on. Thanks. Jeff Hart. Let's check on the markets. The Nasdaq right now hitting session lows down about 3.9 percent or 473 points. It's trading at 11,671. And like we said a moment ago, half the stocks in the composite are now down 50 percent on average from their 52 week highs. Now, as goes the Nasdaq, so goes Bitcoin. And it's been a rough year, down 31 percent since January. Bitcoin today fell as low as $31,000 and $31,003, I should say. That's back to last July levels. It's down 54% from the highs. Is a bottom in sight or not? We have the latest next. Welcome back. Bitcoin down almost 10% today, nearly breaking below $31,000. We got $3 shy of that level. Let's check in on Kate Rooney with what's driving the losses. But Kate, it's not your fault. We should be checking in with the Fed chair, really. Yeah, that's right. A few things are driving this, Kelly. The big one is what's happening in broader markets and the Fed that's driving that. Uh, Bitcoin really hasn't been able to decouple from tech stocks, namely the QQQ, which tracks the Nasdaq 100. Because of that, you've got Fundstrat and other firms now looking to equity research for signs of what's going to happen with Bitcoin. The crypto team over at Fundstrat now looking for a bottom around $29,000, and they say it'll be rocky in the near term. They are recommending clients buy one to three month puts for downside protection, still though bullish on that long-term chart and for the second half of this year. Analysts over at Glassnode point to poor investor sentiment, capital outflows, and overall de-risking in these markets. They note a high degree of urgency around some of the selling. That's often measured by higher fees that investors are willing to pay. Also, outflows from Canadian ETFs. So those are really the only spot Bitcoin ETFs at, those, at this point. Uh, there have 
been strong inflows into those since November. In the past two weeks, though, there's been a significant reversal in that trend. There's also been a lack of demand lately across both the larger what they call whale wallets and what Glassnode is now calling the shrimps. So as the name suggests, those tend to be the smaller investors. All of this, though, Kelly, causing pain here for the crypto investors. In the past month, another 15 percent of Bitcoin investors fell into an unrealized loss. And in total, about 40 percent of Bitcoin investors are now underwater. Back to you. Shrimps. I remember, Kate, a stat from a while ago. So it might be outdated now, but you had said that the typical entry price for people in the wallets was around $22,000. And you wonder if we have to get to that level before we've really capitulated. So for the short term holders, it's even higher. It's around forty seven thousand dollars. So, yeah, so it's it's gone way up in terms of uh, the entry point, at least for for the newer buyers. But if you think of anybody who's bought in the last three months, likely underwater, it's a, a measure of sort of, you know, how how long can they hold on and are they willing to wait that decade time horizon that people say really is the payoff for Bitcoin? I'm glad so they're, we'll you know, the whales and the shrimps, we're all in this together in this big <laughs> ocean of crypto. Exactly. Kate, thank you very much. Kate Rooney. All right, from crypto to stocks, when will the selling pressure stop? We are looking for signs of a bottom. We're snorkeling on Power Lunch. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.